Yeah, I uh, reread. Sorry, is it going now? Yes. Um, I reread the. I guess the main thing that happened that was really nice this week was I reread the Anapanasati uh, Sutta, and I just felt like I got a lot out of that. Um, reading it again and going through it piece by piece was very. Mm -hmm. So I do have some questions related to that, but I'm I'm happy to go to this first topic. Oh, well, we can cover that first topic that we had started on, and then we can get into Anapanasati, because that's a much uh, actually uh, joyful thing to talk about. Uh, the, uh, the word that I had in mind was the word Leela. Have you ever heard of the word Leela before? Okay. Uh, by the time it got out of the uh, India through whatever language of Sanskrit and Pali into the Thai word, the Thai word is Len, because the L, uh, uh, Li, La, will be changed to an N sound, just like the word apple is Appen in Thai. It's because of the Thai law, uh, the rules, but it's the same word, Len. And that Len is what children do. They play. Right, and so uh, um, Lin Kong means toys. Like Su Kong means go shopping or I'm going to go buy things. So the word Kong can be things. So uh, Lin Kong or Lin Kruin would be uh, toy machines or playthings. All right. So this is how the word is used in Thailand. In India, it has more of the quality of a dance. So that the whole world is just dancing. Everything is just a dance, a leela, a play. All right. Not very important. That, that when things become important, they become heavy. They become a drudgery. But when children are playing with their toys, everything is lightweight. And so when your life becomes a song, that means it is no longer heavy, that it's light, that life becomes a dance rather than a march, that we have been taught to march our whole lives, up two, three, four, go get the job done, go to battle, go to the competition, get it done, and all of that kind of stuff. But the real teachings of the Buddha is, is that, no, we don't have to march, we can, we can, uh, we can dance. That we can dance and sing and enjoy our lives and have good feelings. But we have to remember to do that because we have been marching for so long. We started marching when we were six years old. Up, two, three, four, learn them ABCs. Learn those one, two, threes. Put those two words together. We've got a dick and we've got a Jane here. Can't you see what we're doing? Up, two, three, four, get your job done. Put your cell phone down, do your homework, clean your room, pick up your mess, pick up your toys. I had a conversation with one of a good friends uh, a couple of years ago, and he was saying that, uh, um, that it's really hard to get the kids to pick up their and clean their room and pick up their toys. I said, yeah, but who wants the room cleaned up? Who wants the toys picked up? <laughs> you're the one who wants the toys picked up, not the kid. If the kid wants to pick up the toys, then he'll pick them up. So your job is to not make the kid pick up the toys. Your job is to help the child enjoy picking up the toys. 
So what we do with that, we make a game out of it. We make the toys themselves toys as we're cleaning them up. An example would be a toy bag, and so Daddy can hold a toy bag like this while little Junior is throwing his toys into the toy bag. All right, we can make anything, any job can become a toy. Any job can become a play if we can remember to do that. Other than that, it's the work. Getting the work done is more important than doing the work. And we get very much wrapped up into that mentality, even in sports, where the old wise man will say it's not the winning and the losing of the game, it's how you play it. Are you enjoying the game? If you're enjoying the game, then who cares what scores at the end of it or not? But we've gotten very, very result-oriented. Get the job done no matter what. No matter how bad you feel, you've got to get the job done. And a much better way of living our lives is to enjoy your work. Enjoy the job, and whether it gets done or not is, is not so important. But when it does get job, it's probably going to be a better job than when we did it because we were forced to do it or because we didn't like it or because it had to get done. And so we threw something together to get it done rather than tinkering with it and playing with it. And now we've got something really magnificent. Okay, that's what we mean by playing. Learn to play. If you want to compose music, let your whole life become a music. Just a song, that's all you've got, just a song. Now, in fact, we can think of it that in, in this way, that that particular thought, life can be a song, is a philosophy. <laughs> totally. But is, this is a philosophy we can live rather than study out of a book. And when we live a philosophy, that makes it really easy. When we're studying it in books, it's oh so hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, life is a joy, life is a, a leela, and we practice anapanasati to begin to do that. We begin anapanasati in the investigation of the things that are changing. Notes keep changing. Um, as, as far as copying and music and, and going and whatnot like that, one of the things that I would say is, is that the very first human who let out the very first scream was the only original music there was. After that, everybody's just copying. <laughs> Even Beethoven is not doing anything, he's just copying some old man's scream. <laughs> That's interesting. That's very interesting. Right. And so we, we elaborate on it. We make it a little bit special, but that's all it is. All music is, is just letting it out. Yeah. What is we letting out? That out breath. Just let it out. <sighs> 
and that's music. <laughs> totally. Uh, it kind of seems to me to relate to like the idea, like, I don't know if this is even, it seems like a Buddhist idea that like everything changes, but everything's the same, right? That everything's in constant flux, but at the same time, what is in constant flux, like the fact that it is in constant flux, it's kind of a permanent thing, right? So it's like, in a way... It depends upon the way that you're looking at it, okay? That if you are, in fact, riding a wave, then that riding of the wave is up and down and up and down and up and down. But when you draw back from it far enough, you can see the up and down without being in the up and down. And then you can begin to see the similarities of the waves. But when you're stuck on a wave, it's down, it's up, it's in between, it's going down, it's at rock bottom, it's on the way up. Nader, zenith, nader, zenith, nader, zenith, and a whole bunch of zeros in there. <laughs> and that's why we see life like that, that life sucks when you're riding the wave. But when you're standing back and seeing the waviness, now that becomes a joy is to get away from it all, literally. Far from the maddening crowd that are riding the waves or own the cycle. So yes, we can say the more things change, the more they stay the same is only true in the sense that we've changed our perspective. That things are constantly in motion when we're close. But when we draw back, they begin to see that it, everything's the same. Buddhism really, like, is all about perspective, right? Uh, and coming out of it. Okay. But it's, it's really, like, it's purely focused on perspective. Well, actually, a better way of saying it is focused more on observation. And, uh, and uh, because I say observation, that means that per perceptions and perspectives is something that is to be observed. Mm. <laughs> that this is something that is in Western Buddhism only a t little bit, but it's a major, major part of the teaching of the Buddha. It is so major that it is the number one item on the Eightfold Noble Path. And that is right noble view. But when we hear the word view, that's a bad translation, because when we hear the word view, we automatically think of it as viewpoint. Right viewpoint, or how are we supposed to look at things? And when you read it in the sutras, it doesn't answer that question at all because the, uh, using the word view is not the right word. That uh, investigation, observation, or looking would be much better words than the word view because the word view can be easy. I mean, we can say view what's going on, but we don't use the word view like that. We use the word view in the sense of a worldview, a viewpoint, uh, something like that. And so the word view makes uh, Western Buddhism more difficult. If we would have right observation or right looking, 
a right seeing, then we could get a better understanding of what right view actually is. Because what we really mean is, is to have one right observation means that we come out of holding views. We come out of holding viewpoints. Because in fact, a view or a viewpoint is nothing but a conceptualization. It's a mental construction is what a view is. That we say, well, I have a worldview, but that's just an opinion. That's all it is. And when we start observing, we can begin to see holes in our viewpoints. We can we see things as we as they really are. Again, this is what the practice then of Anapanasati, the practice of Anapanasati is to help us to see the way things really are and gives us the guidance and perspective to go in and look. And so this is what Anapanasati is all about. Now, there are two ways of looking at it. One is the original looking, the original investigation is to see what the mind is doing right here, right now, so that we can make a change to that, that when we look, we're looking with discrimination so that we can discriminate between what's a wholesome thought and what's an unwholesome thought. So we have that uh, perspective or understanding to see what's going on right this very moment. And then we can look at overall the picture of Anapanasati is that we can see that there's one way of looking at it is debate to break it into two different groups. One group is step one to step 12, and then the next group is step 13 to step 16. In other words, we're dividing out the body, the feelings and the mind or the chitta from the mind's objects. Now, right in the very beginning, we're going to start changing the mind's objects because the objects in the mind are in the beginning are the hindrances. Right? And so we're going to throw those things out. We're going to actually change the content of the mind. That's something that we do right from the beginning. Now there's another way of looking at it, and that is, is that once we have taken over control of the mind and can control the contents of the mind and the body and the feeling, that by having control over the mind and the feeling and the body, that means now that we have attained or we can uh, abide in what is referred to as the first jhana. And this first jhana is accompanied by the fact that we don't have any hindrances, that we can apply the mind and sustain the mind onto uh, what we're looking for or what we're looking at, and that is wholesome thought. So we can apply it to the wholesome and sustain it in the wholesome. And so there's two more jhana factors. And then we look at Anapanasati again, and we can see that all, yes, in the Vedana part, we have pity and sukha. Well, sukha is actually feeling uh, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, basically in that order. And then pity is the wow sensation that we get from, oh, I can do this. And so the Eightfold Noble Path then 
is right there in practice of Anapanasati, and Anapanasati is geared directly to taking the mind into the first jhana. It's got all those components right there. If you put this stuff together, you can say that's exactly what's going on. We use right view, a right investigation, sati to wake up to remember to investigate, the effort that it takes to throw out unwholesome thoughts, the hindrances, and put them in, uh, put wholesome thoughts in the mind. By doing so, we're also breathing well. We're remembering to breathe. We're taking that. And so we're taking control of the body by learning to breathe and know the body and relax the body. Those are the first four steps of Anapanasati. And then Pitti and Sukha. And then step seven and eight is to um, experience the connections between the body and the mind to see how the, the mind is the, is the body and the feelings are conditioners for the mind. We begin to see that as part of Vedana, that we can begin to see the body, the mind and the feelings are deeply interconnected, just like the body and the feelings are deeply interconnected. This is step uh, seven and eight of Anapanasati. So now that we've got the jhana, now that we've got all of that stuff together, now we can really do what needs to be done with step 13, 14, 15, and 16. So we could say that the first 12 steps is the preliminary of getting the mind fit for work. Now that the mind is fit for work, what are we going to do with it? The Anapanasati Sutta actually can be very, very well understood with the Companion Sutta number 111. The, the Sutta is named one by one as they occur because here in this Sutta, uh, the Buddha talks about actually what we're going to do with the step 13, 14, 15, and 16. Now, the step 13, 14, 15, and 16 is a Nietzsche or the fact that everything is changing. Then things fade away, they uh, are in a state of secession, and then the relinquishment. These are the last four steps of Anapanasati. Now, let's look at that from the point of view of this other sutta, to where once the mind is in first jhana, we're actually going to observe things. Just like in the Mahasi, they note things. Except in the Mahasi method, they start to noting while the mind still has hindrances. And they continue to note the mind with hindrances. They never go to the right effort to remove those hindrances. So what is it that we're going to note when the mind actually is free from hindrances? That's kind of a catch question or an introduction into the next part of the, of the sutta or the next part of it. So if the Mahasi method is noting the mind as it is with hindrances, once the hindrances are removed, then what does the Mahasi method note? That's the question. Once the hindrances are removed, what do they note? Yeah, what what is there left to note? Wholesome. Wholesome. Precisely. Exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. That's exactly <laughs> correct. When we have removed all of the unwholesome stuff and are now in the first jhana, the only thing that there is to note are wholesome things. 
Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? <laughs> of course. And yet that that that's often an elusive kind of question. Okay, so let's look at some of the things then that we can be seen that are wholesome. Well, since we are in first jhana and the first jhana is wholesome, that means that every individual item on the list of the uh, hindrances, or excuse me, on the first jhana are things that are to be observed. And this is how that's done. It's done from the sense of how is my investigation? How is my um, effort? What, how's my sati? How is my, in other words, we're actually looking at the Eightfold Noble Path with, with, uh, because the Eightfold Noble Path is all wholesome. So how is my sati? Or another way of saying it, in fact, the way that it's stated in the sutta is the first thing we observe is the applied, sustained thought. How is my mind applying to the wholesome? Am I able to sustain it? That's the question. That's the observation is to start looking at the fact that we're sustaining the mind and the wholesome. We also uh, are bringing up the, the, the factors of um, first jhana in the sense of sukha. So the question is, how's my sukha? Let's look at it. Let's investigate sukha. Okay. Do I really feel all of that fearless right now? Do I feel free? Do I feel safe? Do I feel secure? Do I feel comfortable? The answer is yes, I do. I feel comfortable. This is really nice. Comfort is really good stuff, I'll tell you. Being comfortable is nice. A lot of people don't know that because they're oftentimes just all the time being uncomfortable about this, that, and the other thing, when in fact they don't recognize how nice being comfortable really is. And so we need to investigate being comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> And we investigate, how does it feel to be completely satisfied? Are you satisfied? Yeah, I'm satisfied. What does satisfaction feel like then? And so this is what we're going to investigate. We're going to investigate this first jhana. But we're going to do it in a special kind of way. In the beginning, we recognize the joy, or let us say the sukha, as it arises because we're thinking about it. But really what we're going to be doing is looking at everything that happens one by one as they occur, as they appear in the consciousness. But as one appears, what used to be there is rotting away. And so we have to pay attention to this flux with everything. The sukha arises, satisfaction arises, comfort arises. But when comfort arises, satisfaction passes away. When comfort passes away, uh, fearlessness arises back and forth, and we can see that. We can see this constantly arising and passing away, but the important point is, is that everything that is arising and passing away are all wholesome. These are the wholesome things that are arising and passing away. I pay attention to the applied thought, and the sustained passes away. I look at the sustained thought, and the, uh, this passes away. So when this occurs, this died off. When the next thing occurs, this has to die off. And the next thing, over and over again, we're just a chain of flux. And what we begin to do is we draw back and begin to see that arising and passing away, the arising and the passing away. 
because normally what we're doing is we're either looking at the arising when it arises and then we're looking at the passing away. Now we're drawing back and we're beginning to see all oh, the arrives that pass away. It arises, it pass away. Oh, a nadir, oh, a zenith, oh, a zero, oh, a nadir, oh. And we begin to see this stuff one by one as they occur. But it's all wholesome as, they th- as things die out and are refurbished or uh, something new happens. And we begin to watch that. But we watch it in the sense that it's a show. It's a lila. It's a dance. Everything is constantly in motion. Everything's in a dance. This arises and passes away, and that note arises and passes away. Then, in fact, what kind of music would we have is once a note starts, it doesn't pass away. It just keeps going. How much noise would there be in the air if no, no, no note stopped? Well, imagine what it's going to be like if no humans died. What the world is going to be like 300 years from now if nobody who's alive now dies? (laughs) No, we need both the arising and the passing away. That that's part of the natural cycle. And it's part of the dance. It's part of the music. That we come to the end of the, uh, of the, um, the bar and there's a coda or there is um, something, and there's a stop. Then, in fact, one of the things that I like about Beethoven is, is he'll, he'll, he'll have this grand chord that is only an eighth note, followed by the whole rest of the measure is um, empty, except for just one musical instrument that has a whole note. <laughs> and you can hear that whole orchestra go, Bang! And then all you hear is that oboe going. <laughs> and so that oboe sound or that 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 the quality of it had to do with the fact that everything stopped except that one note and then it stopped too. But in fact, you find that a lot in Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. I've been studying that one recently and found that, wow, he's really, really I, I like Beethoven. He's he's good because everything is repetitive. He does everything over and over and over again, and then he'll make a little twist to get the mind to, to, to change. But music is really a good example of the Dhamma because it happens over and over and over and over again. The arise, the pass away, arise, the pass away. A good example of that is his Fifth Symphony. Da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da. And the whole first movement of that sympathy is nothing but those four notes. Da da da, and followed by a quarter note. Ba. That's great. It's really amazing when we begin to analyze the music to recognize the mind works exactly that way. This is exactly how the mind works over and over and over and over again. But we need to begin to study that arising and the passing away and the arising and the passing away of each mind moment. And now we're doing it with wholesome things so that we see the mind um, in operation. We can look at the Eightfold Noble Path, most specifically the skill part set. How is my sati? How fast is it? How powerful is it? How quick is it? Now, I'm using the difference between how fast and how quick in the sense of how often does it come up 
as opposed to when it is up, how quick can we catch stuff? Because a lot of what we're doing here in this practice one by one occur is some of this stuff happens really, really fast and dawn. <laughs> and that we need to start watching that arising and passing away is some of that stuff that happens really, really quick, quick in the mind. And in fact, we can begin to understand that everything that happens in the mind happens really quickly. And that a mind moment is somewhere down in the range of about 100 milliseconds. About a tenth of a second is all that it takes for things to happen in the mind. And when and as we study that more and more, we can begin to see things happening at that microscopic level. But that same- for instance, uh, an image, uh, just a flash of an image, it may be the flash of an image of a bank statement or a skeleton or a dark house or anything, but it just takes a tenth of a second for that flash of that image. And then the next second, the whole system is built into fear. Just a flash of an image. And then we feel really afraid and we don't know why. Well, the answer is, is because you thought of something really scary. Didn't take long to think of it, but it then you worked yourself up into being afraid. And a second later, you're full of terror. And nine-tenths of a second, you worked up into the terror, but it was only a tenth of a second that you had that image. So can you see those images now as images and recognize I don't have to be afraid just because I saw that image? So this is the speed that we're beginning to get to, is to see those things arise and pass away really, really quickly. Totally. But at the same time as how fast they arise and pass away, there's a lot that happens in one mind moment, right? There's more mm-hmm. than able to comprehend happens within or be aware of happens within the mind in the same way that like we were talking last time about sense and like there's more that we could perceive a vast, mm-hmm. great, greater amount of what actually. What. Exactly. Now, we do not have to become experts in neuroscience. We do not have to become experts in neurophysiology. And in fact, many of the experts in neurophysiology and neuroscience are still not happy anyway. So they may have too much. (laughs) All right. May have too much neuroscience. We don't have to do too much neuroscience, but it really is remarkable to recognize that the way that the Buddha described the functioning of the mind, it winds up being that exactly in the in the. the structure versus the function, that he's got the function of the mind down because that's what he studied. He didn't have a scalpel. He didn't have MRIs. He didn't have all the equipment that we have now. But the stuff that we're having now and the instrumentation is figuring out, surprisingly enough, that the Buddha was right all along. But at the same time, I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't need to bring it here. But at the same time, to bring philosophy into it, it's really difficult to attach, you know, an MRI scan to what's actually happening in the mind, right? We can look so at- far. They'll work that out. They'll figure it out. They're they they're getting some instrumentation. They'll work that out. Can you imagine how the world has changed simply because of a thermometer? Before we had thermometers, all we knew was I feel hot and I feel cold. We had no understanding of ice. We had no understanding of steam. We didn't know any of that kind of stuff. All we had was the feeling where I feel hot and I feel cold. Now that we have thermometers, we understand zero or 32. We understand 212. 
We understand zero. Not only that, but now we can go up and we can understand the melting point of iron. And we didn't know those kind of things a long time ago. All right. Thermometers have radically changed our whole way of living. Science, almost all of science is built upon thermometers. Why? Because we recognize finally that the thermometer is nothing but the measurement of energy. That energy is actually nothing but motion. And the question then is, what is moving? The answer to that is, yes, the heavier it is, the, the motion that it has takes more energy. But we couldn't have worked any of that stuff out until we had gotten a mercury thermometer. Okay, so now that we have MRIs, now that we have these brain scans, what are they going to be able to do with them in the next hundred years? Marvelous things. No doubt, no doubt. So, we can look at it from that way. Yeah, we can, you can, we can uh, praise the neuroscientists and give them an attaboy and tell them, you guys keep going. I'm sure that you'll figure out what we already know. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how the mind works. Yeah, because it does kind of seem. Um, like the, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the whole idea that like. Of, I don't know, the Mary's room thought experiment of like the neuro, the neuroscientist who's colorblind and she spends her whole life like in a in a room, but she's a brilliant scientist and she learns all the neuroscience possible and everything to do with human color vision, but she's colorblind. Mm -hmm. Right. All she's seen her whole life is black and white. And then one day she steps out of the room after having gained all the scientific knowledge and she sees a red rose. And the question is, did she learn anything? You know, seeing red for the first time. Mm -hmm. you know, all the scientific background to it already she already knew like all the understanding so it does kind of seem that like the neuroscience is is working in one way and then you know buddhism well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to have uh they're trying to devise experiments that experiment would be impossible to do but imagine that we could do it let us say that we go and raid an orphanage and take only really young babies and we put them into a building, a play school or whatever, and we've had uh, some very high quality artists come in and paint everything black and white. And we make sure that no books get into that school that even have a gray color. That is every book is either black or white. Every letter is either black or white. I mean, that would be a lot of work to do that. But it could possibly be done. In fact, I think that the most difficult part about it would be that a whole bunch of goody two-shoes would make sure that you couldn't do that experiment. They don't want their kids in there. Certainly not. <laughs> okay, so, so you may have some opposition to doing the experiment. But then after we did that experiment and let those kids grow up in the black and white environment and some of them, in fact, some of those books will have all about neuroscience or blacks and colors and all of that. You can't help but having those kind of books. So a lot of the kids are going to know about color. OK, so we could actually go and do that kind of experiment and then ask the kids themselves what it was. Now, I have a similar joke. 
And the joke is, is that the mom was um, uh, one of these uh, helicopter green moms. And she wanted to make sure that Junior had only really, really good, high quality food. And one day they go for a visit to some relatives or something like that. And the little boy at the age of four or five meets a little girl who's having a chocolate candy bar and she gives him some and he puts that chocolate in his mouth and the next thing that he says is mom what he has felt robbed she has a, he, he was five years old before he ever got to taste the chocolate and he's really angry at his mom because he didn't get the chocolate okay so that's possibly going to be the outcome of that thing when those kids walk out of that uh, thought experiment that you've got of everything in black and white and they start seeing color they're going to feel robbed <laughs> they're not going to feel like they've learned anything they're going to feel robbed totally well you can another way of simplifying um the thought experiment is talking about like oh, i forgot what it's called is it marmalade it's like this it's like an english spread um, uh, actually, yes, marmalade is English. There's also um, uh, Australian uh, marmalite. Marmalite, yeah. So either marmalite or marmalade, and it's like it's a very particular flavor. So the idea is like, you know, someone can describe to you what marmalade or marmalite tastes like, but until you've actually tasted marmalite, I I think you're talking about the marmalade. Uh, 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 the other one is uh, just. Marmalade is just a fruit uh, yeah. jam. Yeah, no, right. no. It, it's something that you put on crumpets. It's a sweet thing. Marmalite. It has the graininess of sand, right, right. and it has got to have liver in it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. But yeah. it is an undescribable taste, and it also is an acquired taste. I've had it, and I. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. That's another way of thinking about it. It's like. You they also have another one, Vegemite, and that's about the same thing as Marmalite. Um, there's no way to describe that. Like, it's just talking about like experiences as we, as we experience them and through a first person perspective are different from what you can describe, you know. Well, not only taste. Yeah. But everything that is an, a sense experience cannot be shared with language. What we can do is we can construct concepts. And so when I said uh, it tastes like uh, or they've got to have a uh, liver in it, that was putting it out as a concept. OK, uh, as an idea. Now, the other thing is about feelings. This is a very interesting point is, is that people will feel a certain way, but we only have a few words to describe feelings. But there's a wide variety of feelings. In other words, we can break, basically break it down to a handful of good feelings and a handful of bad feelings. Anger, fear, disgust, grief, sorrow, that kind of thing. And then on the other one would be elation joy, satisfaction, relaxation, comfort. And that's about all we have, okay? So how then do we describe how we actually feel is we use concepts 
to do that. And almost always we use uh, part of the concept building is using grandiosity. This is what I mean by grandiosity is, is that it's hard to tell you how bad I feel. So I have to either demonstrate how bad I feel with my hands on your throat <laughs> or, or, or I have to describe how I feel, but I have to use grandiose language. I can't just say I'm really pissed off at you and convey that message. Right? This is where this is what I'm getting at is that we often are grandiose because we don't have adequate language to describe how we feel exactly. In other words, we don't have 10 gradations of anger. Like the for Eskimos, the Eskimos have 18 different words for snow. Why? Because they have 18 different kinds of snow that they have to deal with. And so they have all these extra words for snow because snow is different and they have all those gradations. Okay. When, when angry, I mean, we can use words like I'm pissed or I'm upset or I'm angry or whatnot like that, but those words are generalities and we don't actually have the, the gradations of what these feelings are. Maybe that's what the philosophers can do is they can sit down in the, in a room together and make each other feel various ways so that they can come up with a new language so that they can precisely define exactly what feeling is. And you have that particular feeling and have an actual word for it. Well, I think the people who describe the feelings and gradations are not the philosophers, right? But poets, right? I mean, we would think of poetry as like... You know, you could say like I feel. Ah, but the poets are painting pictures again. We don't have actually just language. They're using uh, words to paint a picture or to build in a concept. What I'm actually talking about is actually let's go in and scientifically define feelings and give a particular word for it. Hmm. So that then people will actually know how they feel. That's tricky. So that's one possibility, but we don't have that and we don't have any possibility, just like we don't have a possibility of doing the thought experiment of taking a bunch of orphans when they're very young babies and putting them into a black and white building. We just can't do that. So we don't know the answer <clears throat> as to whether the person who has learned something or not. So they'll those kind of philosophical questions really have no meaning until they're brought back into how do we actually live our lives? I can see color. I don't have to worry about seeing it for the first time. I know what it is already. But I think, don't you think that there's wisdom to be gained um, from that thought experiment and in terms of there's wisdom to be gained from the idea that you know, just what you were saying, and that our the sense experiences that we have cannot be described. And that's really what the, the thought experiment is getting at, right? Right, that's exactly right. We're trying to think through that, and that would be um, a way of, of talking about it. But I'm also making the point, but we don't have that. Hmm. Yeah, of course that what we do have the ability is instead of putting a particular language to it, we can actually investigate how we actually feel. 
and we can investigate actually how we feel without the language putting on it, but we can put on it in the sense of the understanding that we have some control over how we feel. That is the major point that is the first step of uh, Anapanasati, or the very first step on the Buddhist path, because most people are taught through society that you are not in control of your feelings. Okay, that you're supposed to control your behavior, but you're out of control with your feelings. And so children are taught to control their behavior, buck up or whatever like that. Uh, but we're never given the actual skills to go in to actually learn how to control our feelings. And so everybody feels kind of out of control. One of the ways that we feel out of control is by saying this feeling is me or it is my feeling in the sense of I am angry rather than recognizing no there's a part of the mind that's the I that's the observer that observes the anger they are not the same thing there's a separation in there and that when we can see the anger we can see it as separate from us and we can say aha I see you anger but most people are confused they think that I am angry I am the anger itself. And or whatever the feeling is. So we and now we don't even have to define the word. That's just an example. But we can recognize that we do have some control over the way that we feel. But this is, in fact, the beginning part of the Anapanasati is that we have to get ourselves into a first jhana. We have to get ourselves into a really good feeling state so that we can see things the way that they actually are. As opposed to these hindering thoughts that keep coming in and mucking stuff up and muddying up the waters and, and confusing us about what's real. So the first part is, is to get the mind controlled enough to throw the hindrances out, take control of the breathing, take control of the body, let it relax, feel good, satisfied, comfortable, contented, and all of that. And now we can begin to investigate what's real, which is all wholesome. Um, I was I was wondering, though, um, with with once you've gotten into the first genre, let's say, and it's all wholesome you and you're in, within the process of observing when you're in the process of observing, you're still applying the attention to feel wholesome thoughts, right? And to think wholesome thoughts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what we mean by the applied and, uh, and uh, sustained thought, not just merely as a concept, but the observation. Am I doing it? Am I applying the mind to the wholesome? Am I applying the mind to the uh, uh, to sustaining it? To sustain that wholesome, to keep it going to not allow the unwholesome thoughts to come back in. This is a big part of the skill. The skill is to get the mind into a good state and then keep it there. And to be on guard for the hindrances that will pop back into the mind. Aha, I see you too. Out you go. I'm going to be 
satisfied here for a moment. I don't need to think about Aunt Susie and the argument that we had. I don't have to think about the bank. I don't have to think about that email. I don't have to think about the boss. I don't have to think about God. I don't have to think about religion. I don't have to think about anything. I can just sit here and just relax. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's what we mean by aha, I see you, Myra, is I don't have to think that stuff. Because when I do think those thoughts, I don't feel satisfied. But when I have satisfying thoughts, then I can feel satisfied. So now I can get myself into a really, really wholesome state. But now the only thing there is to observe is wholesome things. So one of the ways of looking at it is, is that to observe pity, we really need to have some pity. But as we observe pity, we recognize that it's not only just exuberant and really, really marvelous and wow, what a good kick I'm getting out of the whole thing. That actually takes some effort. And that I can let that effort move down just to the level of sukha, but now I'm really, really satisfied. And I'm really getting a load out of how satisfied I am. Until later, I recognize that getting a load out of being satisfied is also a little extra work. Why don't I just go into a state of completely and everything is just so nothing. <laughs> and that's when we're really relaxed. This is the level of upeka. So we have pity, sukha, upeka, and all those three things are... Um, they're the same thing, just the intensity level is different, but each one of them needs to be observed as they arise and pass away. So the pity arises, it passes away into sukha, sukha arises, it passes away into equanimity. And we begin to watch that process. That's what the rising and the fading away is all about, is to recognize, yes, that everything is fading away, because when we're able to do that arising and passing away and fading away, we're actually operating down at that level of a tenth of a second. Because that's how fast stones are arising and passing away. They're down at that level. And so when we're watching it at that level, we're sharp. The mind is fast. Your sati is good. Because you can see that stuff as it's happening. And wow, what a show it is. What a marvelous show it is just to see things. Just popping and going and popping and going. Just enjoy the show. You don't need your money back. You don't need to change the script. You don't need to try to figure out what the end of the play is all about. All we have to do is just watch the action. It's marvelous right here. So this is the practice of the Buddha to recognize that, hey, this is the end of it. It's just that's all there is to it. Just perception and feelings. And we can let those pass away. And everything is just easy peasy. Life is such a joy. It's easy. It's a leela. It's a dance. It's a play. Everything's a toy. Nothing's important at all. Except philosophy. Now, philosophy, that's important. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. 
was... <laughs> but it is, I don't know, I get such a kick out of it. I, uh, I, there's... Well, but it's a toy. That's the whole point. That that when philosophy becomes a toy, it actually is philosophy. When philosophy is work, it's not philosophy at all. I don't know quite what it is, but it's not the <laughs> love of wisdom. <laughs> totally, that's a damn good point. Yeah. Um, as just a straight practical matter, um, going back to like the basics of the Anapanasati Sutta. Mm-hmm. Um, questions that I was wondering is um is there any times like if we're thinking about so you mentioned um that the three um factors of mindfulness are really that there's three factors of mindfulness that are really preparatory for the last one which is the the mind's objects everything else is preparatory for really getting ourselves to be able to Mm -hmm. in other words we have to get the mind fit for work and that fit for work is first jhana um, and it's good work because we've cleaned our lens. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I was wondering if, if, because um, the way it's it's set up in the uh, in the sutta is that it's presented first the body, mindfulness of the body, then mindfulness of the feelings, then mindfulness of the mind. Um, so should we always take it like that? Like, is it like what you've all? No, not at all. That is what you would call the distinction between the organized method and the natural method. Uh-huh. Anapanasati, as well as many things Buddhist, as well as everything else, is always taught in an organized way. For instance, first grade, they teach one, two, three, and A, B, C. Then later they take to arithmetic and then later they give an introduction to algebra and then they go deeper into algebra. And when deeper algebra comes, that touches calculus and geometry and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, so it comes in stages. But once you become a mathematician, then all of that stuff is mixed together in the sense that the human brain um, mixes the um, the geometry and the calculus together but it becomes kind of one thing all right the same thing is true then with anapanasati and that we use anapanasati for the fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness but we can look at the four foundations of mindfulness as nothing but an ancient way of looking at the human being in whole And that this came from originally and even in Greece. So this is not just um, uh, ancient India. But all of the world at that time saw things as four elements. Mm. The elements are solid, liquid, gas, and fire. Those are the four elements. And that the Buddha took those four elements and turned them into the inside so that the physical is the body. The fluid or the liquid is the emotion, the fire is the mind, and the air or the clouds in the air are the thoughts that go by. Okay, and so he's taking old science and turning it into an internal representation, just like in the old days, the jhanas were taught with casinas. 
They were external objects, a pile of mud or looking at the water if you read Siddhartha or looking at a mountain peak far enough away or whatever like this. The old objects of meditation, water, diamonds or gemstones, etc., like that were always done on the outside. What the Buddha t- did was he turned all of those four kinds of objects that we have for meditation into the internal part of the body. So looking at a mud disc or looking at a mountaintop would then be the uh, casinos for the, the body or the physical, and that would be uh, turned on to look at your own physical body. Looking at water or into gemstones would then be turning that and look at your own emotional feelings. There's also fire meditations. And so now we're going to turn that external fire into an internal fire meditation. And also uh, think about it like this. There are three fields that are, are part of the next one. And that is weather, astronomy, and astrology are all air meditations. Look at what the air is doing. Okay, and so now we take that on on the outside and bring it on to the inside of the mind. And look at what the air is on the inside of the mind. These clouds that float by, this weather that we have on the inside, this lightning storm that happens, or maybe all of the stargazing that we could be doing, etc. like that. And so we take the external world and bring it into the internal world and we bring the meditation objects out of the external world into the internal world. You could say that that, in fact, was the major, major change that the Buddha made as he stopped looking on the outside and started looking on the inside. That's where the real solution to one of uh, all of life's problems are. That all of the ordinary people are always still looking for, for things on the outside. We look to governments and business and education. We look for power on the outside. We look for uh, tools and weapons on the outside and all of that to where really the Buddha's whole thing is let's stop looking at the outside world and start looking at what's going on inside now. So with that uh, fire, water, air, and, and ground, They don't have to be done in any particular order. We just happen to have gotten in the habit of naming them in the order that they are named. But just because we named them in that order doesn't mean that we have to practice them in that order. Then, in fact, things don't operate like that. This is organized. We've got to organize. In fact, you can think of it like this, that the failure of every book is that every book, whether it's a self-help, a novel, um, a, a technical point is that it has broken down into chapters and that it's got to do one thing after another after another and so basically uh life doesn't come at us in that organized way life comes just random almost this is how we have to recognize that life is to be studied in an organized way but it is to be observed and practiced in a natural way, one by one as they occur. So Anapanasati is actually a natural method right from the very beginning. How are we going to get the mind into the first jhana is not because we do body, then we do feelings, then we do mind. 
That's not how we bring first jhana about. No, we have to provide the Eightfold Noble Path to this. And that is, we have to have sati. We have to remember or to wake up. Well, now that's step nine of Anapanasati. We have to then uh, observe the mind. And then we have to take the right effort to gladden the mind. That's step 10 of Anapanasati. Okay, so the Eightfold Noble Path and Anapanasati fit right together. But Anapanasati is... is um, structured around both uh, the Satipatthana and the first jhana. That's why all of these jhana factors are mentioned right there. In other words, gladdening the mind, well, that's removing the hindrances. Sukha, pity, uh, being able to apply it and sustain the mind, that's right there built into the Anapanasati practice. So this all this stuff fits right in together. With the Eightfold Noble Path, we're practicing Anapanasati, and with Anapanasati, we're getting ourselves into a really marvelous state, so that now we can play with some really wholesome toys. Very wholesome toys, like how's the mind? How is sharp is it? How's my sati? How's my investigation? How good do I feel? How is my sukha? Ooh, sukha. And so we start observing and looking at this stuff, and and because this is how we're going to build it up as a skill, is by of looking at it and observing it and piling it on. Yeah, I feel good. Let's feel better. (gasps) Oh, this is good enough. (laughs) And so this is the Anapanasati that is all integrated into this idea of learning how to play. That life is just a leela. That life is music. And we watch the notes arising and passing away, and we see the the rhythm, we see the harmony, and we see the repetition, the, the, the beat, over and over and over and over again. That's how we learn to boogie. Yeah. <laughs> So um, would you say that in all situations, the best way of going about things is to apply the steps of Anapanasati just as we feel like it? So like, I want to gladden the mind right now, so I'll gladden the mind. I want to observe the body right now, so I'll observe the body. I want to observe the mind right now, so I'll observe the mind. I don't need to do anything particular because nothing particular. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you've been doing that your whole life already. You just didn't know how that you were doing it or didn't know the difference between wholesome and unwholesome. So we haven't really learned much, but we learned enough. (laughs) Uh, But that's interesting uh, as well that um, because the Anapanasati Sutta doesn't mention wholesome and unwholesome thoughts unless I'm wrong. Ah, but that's because that was a particular lesson given to a particular group of people at a particular time with a particular intention. We need to read some other suttas. That's what I'm I'm getting at, yeah, in terms of... That, in fact, number 118 and 117 are very much companion suttas, just like number 118, the Anapanasati Sutta, has a companion also of the Satipatthana. The Satipatthana and the seven and the uh, 117, the uh, Great Forty, which has the exposition of the Eightfold Noble Path, those two sutras don't make too much sense together. But you put the Anapanasati between them, and you can see that, oh, 
The Anapanasati Sutta is actually the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path, but Anapanasati is practice for the fulfillment of the seven of, of for the four foundations of mindfulness. And all of this stuff fits back together. And then we can have other suttas, like um, for sure, 117 talks about that one's right effort is to remove unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in. And that's where we can see the connection then with Anapanasati of the gladdening of the mind is actually putting wholesome thoughts in. Then we go to sutta number 19, and number 19, the name of that sutta is Two Kinds of Thoughts. And there the Buddha gives a great exposition of what is a wholesome thought, what's a not a wholesome thought, and then he tells the story of the cowherd, which I'll tell you um, at a later time, which is to be able to whack those unwholesome thoughts and to get them clean so that you can get uh, your thoughts, your cows, all into a wholesome state so that you have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. That's explained in, in that sutta. And then we have other sutras that talk about the way that this fits into the path in the sense that number 48 says about that when the student comes to the to the knowledge that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, that he can, in fact, clean that out and come back to this present moment to see things how they really are. OK, but you've got to read a different sutta to get that part of it out. But then you can take and put all of this stuff together in the mix and recognize that the Buddha's got a, a, a unified package here. It's just not done all in one sutta. And that you have to put them together. Why then are, in fact, go ahead. It doesn't matter too much, but why are they? It seems like almost random in terms of like where they're placed or whatever like shouldn't the maybe the anapanasati sutta be like sutta number one or something or at least well like there is actually a method huh. there's actually more than one method one of the methods is the top down approach hmm. and the top down approach from the very top of the apex would be that all of the teachings of the buddha can be wrapped up into just three words or four the entire teaching one of my favorites is don't worry, be happy. That's the entire teaching of the Buddha right there. Another one would be from uh, Goenka. He says, uh, never mind, start again. Which means see what's going on and then forgive yourself for it. Get over it and then come back to the meditation and start again. That's the whole teaching. The Buddha himself had it down to three words, dukkha, dukkha, naroda. To see the dukkha, Throw it out and get yourself into a state of non-dukkha. That's the whole show right there. Don't worry. Be happy. Stop being worried right now and be happy right now. Right. That's all there is to it. However, that's not enough for most people. They need other things. They need tricks. They well, can't take such a simple teaching and just apply it. Well, it's really easy to misinterpret that as well. In terms of like you can i know like over this week there were a lot of times where i was observing the thought within my mind that like oh you're so stressed out right now stop you know just stop stop feeling this you know or whatever um so it's really easy easy to just get like angry at yourself or whatever and just like have the feeling like 
just throw it out or whatever. But at the same time, it's like it's not going anywhere. And it's, I don't know. Well, another way, see, what happens with that is, is that you're making a judgment call in the sense of, oh, that thought is bad. Or you should not be having that thought. Or why are you doing that to yourself? All three of those statements that I just made are critical thoughts. Mm. A nurturing thought would be, well, I don't have to think about that. That would be nurturing. Oh, I don't have to do that. Here you're saying you should not do that. How could you possibly feel good if you keep doing that? (laughs) Well, how could you possibly feel good by telling yourself, you know, that's the unwholesome part right there. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Um, Cause it's, just... <laughs> and that is it. That, that is so brilliant <laughs> to recognize that, that we're harsh on ourselves. Yeah. We don't stand up to our own set of regulations and rules. But again, and we need to forgive ourselves over and over again or be nurturing, not even apply the rules. Just say everything's already okay. I don't need those rules. Totally. But it's at the same way that we're, you know, with, with applying that, um, those nurturing thoughts of you don't have to think that. In a way, you're still you're applying judgment in a way, but it's just a different form of judgment. You're, and you're applying it in a very different way. Right. right. You're applying, but in that case... We need a different word other than the word judgment, because we've already used the word judgment as I like this and I don't like that. Maybe we could talk of it in in the sense of that's what we want to be relieved from. And so having words like relief rather than the word judgment. To become relieved from making the judgments. This is what we would then, that's why I use the word discernment as opposed to judgment. The, the discernment is, oh, I don't particularly need that. Imagine it's almost like that you're packing for a trip and you're packing your backpack. And here you've got a whole bed full of stuff you're trying to put into this little backpack. So you have to use some discernment there. How much stuff are you going to be able to put into that backpack? All right. So that's a different way of looking at it rather than I like this thing that's on the bed and I want it in the backpack. So that's the judgment rather than does it fit? Is this useful, wholesome, valuable right now? So that would be the discernment. And that in the language that we can say is, wow, I don't have to do that. I don't have to carry that one around. I don't need that in my backpack. I don't need that grand piano or grandmother or anything else in my backpack. (laughs) And so this is the way of looking at it. Yeah, it is a kind of a judgment, but we're using the word judgment already in a different way. So we can use a different kind of word like discernment, or just relax, or I don't need that. Don't have room for that one in my mind. I've only got room for wholesome things in the mind. Yeah, well, going back to what you said before about like, we search for fulfillment and satisfaction in the external world. It is damn so true. Um, But it's, 
it's just so easy, I guess, you know, to miss the internal or whatever, you know, and to just completely look past it. And, and it's just mm-hmm. the internal. It's what we see everything through, right? It's just so easy to... Well, the, the interesting thing, though, is is that even though people are looking for their happiness in the outside world, they rarely experience the outside world as it really is. We almost always um, experience the outside world through a through a filter that we call perception, and perception uses old data in the past. So. The the little girl, let us say the eight-year-old girl that was raped by Uncle Johnny, every time she sees Uncle Johnny, she doesn't see who Johnny is now. She remembers who Johnny was way back when. The lady may be 45 years old and Johnny is 70 now, but she still sees Johnny the way that he was when he was a teenager and she was a child. Okay, so we filter our our memories that way, and we think that we're living in the real world. She sees Johnny now the way that he is. No, she doesn't. She thinks she does, but she's always filtering it with the old episode that happened. We do that with everything. An example is, is that people got a really, really great thrill listening to Donald Trump in 2016, and so they really, really liked him. And now they're hearing all of this trash talk about him and they don't want to hear it because they want to continue to feel the way that they felt when they listened to him in 2016. And so they refuse to see things the way they really are because they're attached to the way that they felt. In the past. And so we, in fact, do not live in the present moment. We always are living in the past because the only way that we can make sense out of the present moment is by referring it to what we've experienced in the past. So what we really want to do then is since uh, is in our memory bank is to pay close attention to what's happening now so that we're bringing in a lot of new wholesome input. So that now when we're processing, we're processing it with much more wholesome memories that come up with with realities that are much closer to reality in our mind to the actual reality out there that I think in one time we had a discussion that dukkha can be referred to as how far the mind's reality is from the actual reality. And so in the statement that we were, or the, the example before, this woman cannot see her Uncle Johnny, a 70-year-old dotted man, because she can only see him through the filter of her childhood. So uh, we can see how that happens generationally in the sense that the people who are most likely to be living in a violent household of domestic violence were adults who in their childhood lived in homes that had domestic violence. If you are raised in a home where nobody ever hits anybody, then the likelihood of you hitting people when you're an adult is very low. But if you were hit and spanked and choked and and throttled when you were a kid, you'll go around hitting and punching and stroking and throttling people your whole life. 
Why? Because we live in our past rather than living in the present moment. And so what we need to do is to come out of the past, to come out of those hindrances and to see things clearly the way that they really are right now. That's the teachings of the Buddha is to be here now with the reality of what's happening right now. And there's many sutras where you can see that. That in fact, possibly the, the one that's the most surprising and, and almost the clincher is what did the Buddha call himself? He did not call himself Buddha. He did not refer to himself as Siddhartha Gautama of the Sakyan clan. He was known in some cases as Sakyamuni, but the question is, how did he refer to himself? Isn't it um, something like Mr. Here Now? Mm -hmm. The word is Tatata. Or the Tathagatha. He was the Tathagatha, and the word Tathata is built right into it. The one who is here now. It's badly translated as the one who has gone to the thus, or the thus gone one. That's, I mean, gosh, I mean, that's 16th century language. <laughs> that's intense, yeah. <laughs> thus yeah. gone one. But modern language would be the one who is here. Here he is. That's what the word Tathagatha means, is here he is. That's the teaching, is to come and be here. Don't be in the past. Be in the present moment. Don't be off in the future. Let's be here now. Why? Because now we have control over the way that we feel. If we're thinking about the past, then the past controls the way that we feel. We will feel the way that we used to feel. Or we can make a choice or make a change and say, no, I'm not going to feel the way that I'm used to feeling I'm, or the habit feeling. I'm going to feel the way I want to feel instead. Let me play with that. Yeah, totally. I think it's totally. I think it's easy to um, go into the past because it's like, okay, I'm in the present right now. What do I want from the present? I want to be happy. All right, well, how do I be happy? Well, I have... I, I have memories where I was happy in the past so I can go to those memories and then I'll be happy or whatever. But, you know, we're not truly happy when we're going to memories of the past. Like Not only that, but if we continue that memory machine, we're certainly going to trip and fall into a memory that is not so pleasant. But in fact, we more than likely will remember the things that are not pleasant and we forget about the things that are, are pleasant. It's, um, that's built in, by the way, into the DNA. It's part of the survival mechanism that we will remember the dangers. So in order to preserve the dangers, there's no real reason to remember the good times because they're non-consequential now. Yeah. All right. So we should remember the danger. Here's the example. Little Johnny is drawing on the wall. He's got his crayons out and he's making a beautiful drawing. He's actually quite an artist. But mom comes into the room and now she thinks about walls and paint and landlords and all of that kind of stuff. And so she barks and screams at Johnny for writing on the wall. Now, if she'd really looked in the moment and see what he was doing, she would have said, oh, we've got a budding artist here. Let's go and buy the child some real paint tools. Let's go get him some brushes and some paint and we've got a Rembrandt on our hands. All right. 
But no, what does mom do? You're writing on the wall. You better clean that off because the landlord's going to charge us extra money. We've got to paint this wall. You ought not be writing on the wall, okay? Now, guess what is that boy going to remember when he grows up? Is he going to remember the beautiful art that he put on the wall, or is he going to remember mom giving the hell about it? He probably will remember that he was writing on the wall and called hell about it, but he doesn't even remember what he was drawing. All he remembers was getting caught. That's the way that the mind works. So our past, by by dredging up old memories, we're more than likely going to drag up an old corpse rather than a flower, because we've got a lot of corpses buried up here. <laughs> <laughs> That maybe what we need is some new flowers. So we can have a whole lot of flowers. So yes, it is possible. But that's in fact, I tell the students, but don't go back into the past when you were a teenager or when you were 11. Or even when you were seven or eight, go back to when you were two or three, because that's when you knew how to play. That was when kids have real joy in life. It's when they're two and three years old. By the time they're six, sorry, we're already into the business of doing what we're told to do. Yeah, that's true. So if you can stay with really early memories, then you can have great joy. Interesting. But by the time that you're six years old, they put you to work. So, yes, it's okay for you to use pleasant memories because you had tons of them. When you were three years old, you had all the joy possible for a three-year-old child. And you can have that again today. You had it then, you can have it today. But you got to make sure that the thoughts that you had about then were wholesome. You can remember the exhilaration you had by saying poop, poop, chug, chug when you were pushing that little train around. And so, you know, I can do that again with my whole life. The whole life is nothing but a toy train. And I can say poop, poop, train, train, and everything is okay now. And so our little toy train in the mind becomes a joy. It becomes a, a, a toy. It becomes a Leela. And we can dance. That's what we need to practice doing. And yes, if you can find some joy in your past, go find it. But be careful because right around the corner is going to be a whole lot of misery because we've been piling on and remembering a lot of misery in our life. And that's the part that we need to stay out of. That is very interesting. Mm-hmm. So yes, there is great joy. You have had great joy in your life. I know you've had great joy because I can see it all over your face today. Today, yeah, totally. some some students it's really hard to get them to crack a smile. <laughs> hey, yeah, 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 totally, totally. Mhm. Mm so you already know how to feel. You know how to feel good. So we need to practice that because you also know how to feel bad, and you've been practicing that really, really well. One of the ways that I say it is, is that everyone is skilled at talking themselves into feeling bad. 
now it's time for you to talk yourself into feeling good. And one of the ways you can do that is by remembering how good you used to feel when you were a kid. You can feel that way again. It's funny. I um, where my apartment is. I I am uh, there's like a preschool or something right there on the street. Like mm-hmm. I hear the kids going at it like all day and whatnot. So it's pretty funny to to hear that. Um, I think I think they're a little bit past the age of like everything is wonderful. <laughs> I don't know. But they haven't lost it completely. Preschoolers, they're. <laughs> They are standing at the door of hell, but they haven't stepped in yet. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a very, it is a very interesting perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So go make sense with some of these toddlers. Go make some friends with some of these four and five year olds. You can learn a whole lot about having fun from them. Totally. They haven't forgotten how. Yeah, I mean, they certainly know how to cry as well. Like, and they, they <laughs> but yeah. So you've got a marvelous opportunity. You want to you want to study philosophy? Get your binoculars out and start watching that playground. <laughs> there you'll find some real wisdom to love. You might even make some friends over there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, it's like it's it's interesting. Um that uh because you mentioned like it's bad for a child to be raised by a bunch of other children, right? It's better for them to be raised by a whole family of adults and be raised up around adults than it is to be raised around like a bunch of but at the same time, we can learn a lot from kids <laughs> once we have. Yes. The- it depends upon their age. Um, uh, let us say that the worst aspects of humanity can be demonstrated right there in nursery school. Yeah, that in fact, humans wind up being um, uh, both very, very playful. Just like lion cubs. I mean, lion cubs are really, really playful with each other. That's how they learn to be lions is by playing with each other as cubs. Right? But when they grow up, there's a viciousness in there. Okay, yeah. so the same thing is true with the human in the sense that as we grow older and we gain more and more knowledge from the adults around, we pick up more and more and more of their bad habits. Yeah, and well, then the children who are picking up the bad habits from the adults that they're around pass those bad habits on to the other kids around them. But if you have a child who is in a nurturing environment where he's only got his family and his family is treating him well, then he's to the advantage of not being around a bunch of other kids who have been badly treated by their families. That's so it's a little bit more complicated. I'm I'm sorry I didn't point that out. That yes, that no. when you've got only three and four years old, the worst nature of those three and four year olds are going to be passed around. 
But if you've got one child that's around a whole bunch of adults, then the very best of those adults will be passed on to that child. This is what I'm getting at. But there is also the, the point that many times those adults won't play with that little kid. That kid does need to be played with. But I would assume that if it's, you have a, a, a whole family full of adults and only one child, you're going to have an Uncle Joe or a grandpa someplace that are just overjoyed to be playing with that kid. And then it's going to be more wholesome and the, and the kid's unlikely to go bite his grandfather to get the truck. <laughs> well, I think that's another kind of, I was going to ask like, um, something along the lines, like it feels rather, um, I don't know if inappropriate is the right word, but inappropriate to be thinking like, like if you're trying to um, do something very serious, like if you're like a lawyer working to get someone to, an innocent person from being in prison and you're working on that or something, it's like, you don't want to be thinking that as like a toy or whatever, or that you're just playing around, you know, it's like, there is something serious going on there. But I, at the same time, I can see that, you know, you can think about it and go about it in a skillful way, the playing, um, in a skillful way where you're doing it wholesomely, right? And that's really the key. You're doing it skillfully. Mm -hmm. Cause right. at the same time, you can play with a kid in terms of like, you know, you can put traps around the house, you know, to like to trip them and stuff, you know, and mess with them a ton, you know, and you can, you know, that's obviously very unwholesome, you know, so you can play with them in that sense, you know, or you can like, you know, play the dinosaur games and everything and like actually do what they want to do. And yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. um, the game that I most often play with my daughter is how, how long does it take her to acknowledge that I'm there? <laughs> okay. In other words, I, I'm, I'm very good at sneaking up on her. And sometimes I could get right up to and grab her foot. And she's not paying attention. And sometimes I'll just take a pose and stand. And she won't do anything, but she knows that I'm there. And then I'll make another move. And then she'll make it. Okay, now I'll let you know that I know that you're there. But she's got, she has finally figured out that she cannot ignore me and pretend that I'm not there because I'll continue to come in. I'll sneak up on her, even if she knows I'm sneaking up, that she's got to let me know that she knows that I, that she knows that I'm there. She's got to let me know it, that she knows. That's part of the game. But that was, so there's several things that are going on in that, but I'll, what the point is, is that to get her to wake up and pay attention to the fact that she's in this room and things are happening that she cannot put her whole mind into the cell phone, that she's got to be aware that she's in an environment. This is actually what you would call ninja training. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To wake her up, to let her be here now to become aware of her environment, to not let her the mind go get stuck into the cell phone or in a book or um, into something. And, but this is very much uh, the teaching of the Buddha. This is very much the way that Achan Po trained. He, he, he did a lot of the training simply by not doing anything except just standing there and waiting to figure out that I knew that he was standing there. 
or sometimes he would sneak right up behind me and whisper ta 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 or uh be here now or um um not sure or something like that to be here now and he knew i wasn't here now because he could sneak up on me if i was really here now then he would not been able to do that so turns around to fair play. I'm going to try to sneak up on Achan Po now and see if he can catch me before I get there. <laughs> can I be quiet enough that I can sneak up on the old master? The answer is while he's drinking. When he's <laughs> drinking, that's the only time. <laughs> that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> So this whole point then has been going from the idea of a joy, a leela, a play. Even my teachings from Achan Po were playful. Everything winds up being playful. Even the defense lawyer can be playful at being a very excellent defense lawyer. And by doing so with his playfulness, he's going to be very good friends with the DA. He's going to be very, very good friends with a lot of the cops on the beat. And he's going to be really good friends with the judge. Those kind of things are going to help him do his law things a whole lot better than if he's really serious and uptight. And, yeah. and demands that he gets his way. Yeah, totally. Okay. So that's the way of looking at it is, is that even the defense lawyer can make his life a joy, make his life a play by taking the importance of the winning of the case out of it and having the important thing is the way that we relate to people. That is the way that we live our lives It's the way that we play the game, not the winning or the losing. Yeah, and that's really Buddhism, like the, the ethics of it, right? I mean, if you can even mm -hmm. say, right, that's it's. It's exactly that. It's not about the winning or the losing. It's about the relation that we have to what is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of it has to do with friendship. Are we friendly with ourselves on the inside? Are we friendly with whatever happens on the outside? And that's all the message to it. The Buddha even says that. It's in, in the suttas. By the way, the name of the sutta is the Half Sutta. You can actually type into Google Half Sutta and it'll bring this dude up. Half Sutta? Half. H-A-L-F, half sutta. Because the point is, is that friendship is not half the Dhamma. It is all Dhamma. It's the whole show. It's not just half. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, that's so funny. Um, I don't know. It's just absolutely hilarious. Because, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, that's wonderful. But there, there is, there is so much philosophy around what is it to be a friend, right? Mm -hmm. That has been going on since like the ancients, you know, like what does friendship mean, right? Well, the answer to that lies in the fact, can you be friends with yourself on the inside? Because if you can do that, then you can be friends on the outside. That's the distinction between the half sutta versus the whole sutta. 
the half sutta is, is, oh, you have to be friends with everybody on the outside while you can be miserable on the inside. Don't work. No, you've got to go be friends with the inside first. And when you're really, really accepting and loving and nurturing and satisfied and happy and wholesome on the inside, how can you help but treat other people the same way? And so that's the friendship is not the outside friendship. It's the inside friendship that defines friendship. And if you know how to learn to how to be friends with yourself on the inside, then you'll naturally know how to do it on the outside because we're all the same. And you can recognize that whatever you've got on the inside is the same thing is happening on the outside. An example of that is, is that I'm working now with Dan Ingram and Steve um, to have our next talk. Um, about the Mahasi method and the difference in the ways of the teaching. And the way that I want to look at that and mention to them is, is that it's not about who teaches what. Or even that all of the Western Buddhist teachers teach this, that or the other thing is because we all have started into ignorance. The problem is the way that we're practicing. The problem is our ignorance not who teaches what. And so there's no reason to go around and say, well, this teacher is teaching wrong and that teacher is teaching that wrong and this teacher is teaching that wrong. Let's not work on it from that level. Let's look on the level of what works. Yeah. And then we don't have to concern ourselves with who teaches what that doesn't work. All we need to do is to figure out what does work without criticizing the other guys, because maybe when they hear what does work, they'll start teaching correctly. And then how can we compare and, and compete with each other? I don't want him to know the right, right Dhamma because I want him to stay a bad teacher so I can be a good teacher. Is that the teaching of the Buddha? <laughs> Totally. No, we want to stop our competitive, our stop our competitiveness, stop our com- competition. That is absolutely. And just be friends with everybody. Wow. Let um, that friendship be the the teaching itself. Totally. I'm curious. I I think you've mentioned um, bringing Dan and wanting to bring more teachers into like a space where like an open mic type thing where everyone can talk to each other. I, I personally, mm-hmm. I would be super, super interested to be able to be a part of like listening to all those different perspectives. Um, yeah. Well, you can join. We already have three a week. We have one on, uh, what country do you live in? Live You're in, the- in, huh? I live in the U.S., yeah. You're in the U.S. Okay, so Friday evening is a good time. Um, uh, 7 o'clock Pacific up to 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern time on Friday evenings, we have this, the Sangha meeting. And I would very much like to see you there. <laughs> yeah, I show up once in a while, but like, yeah. I won't be You've able to. You've probably seen the reference, and all you have to do is, is to click on it. Yeah, I've gone. I've gone. I went. Oh, you've been there. Yeah, I, I was wondering. I think you have gone to it. Sure, but I just mean with like, um, not to put, you know, everyone there is extremely wonderful. There's no doubt. But, you know, to have other people who have really studied the Dharma for like years, uh, like, you know, um, and made that, you know, their life really, I've, you know, I think pretty much everyone that goes to the Sangha that I'm aware of is more or less lay people that are 
um, have at most, uh, I don't know, a very, just not like super. <laughs> well, okay, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> you know, I don't want to put this way. Let me say time. it like this. <laughs> Let me say it this way. And that is, would you rather be around old, old Dharma teachers who were serious and really into it and heavy duty practitioners? Or would you rather be around some people who are having a lot of fun with it? No, yeah, of course, of course. That, and that's, yeah, totally. I agree um, 100%. Um, and then I think you do see, yeah, it, it, the, there does seem to be a lot of the former uh, Around. Well, that's because we bring our misery and our suffering into our Dhamma practice rather than leaving it at the door. <laughs> we bring our competition with us. We bring our jealousies with us. Yeah, I don't know. I just I would just in terms of I guess what I was getting at is. Um, no one within the Sangha that I know is really kind of putting forth a version of their dar- of the Dharma, you know, in, in a way we all are, but no one's, you know, no one's, I don't know, I guess to put it in specific, like, I feel like I got a lot out of, uh, like, Kula Das's work or whatever. I'd be very, mm-hmm. I'd love to have him, like, in a call or whatever, you know, and with everyone to be able to talk and to, like, I don't know, I just feel like it'd be so interesting, you know, to talk about the different methods or just, I don't know, just anyone that liked, because it's like, and especially the view that you talk about, about genres specifically, it's just so different from like how they're, how you hear about them normally, you know, where it's like, it's a deep meditative state that you have to like really work into versus it just being something that. Well, what would you think? Let me ask this question about that. Hmm. What would you think normal ignorant western people who have all of the western tools and all the western society about working hard and going deep and doing all of that kind of stuff how would you expect them to approach buddhism totally absolutely uh, okay I mean, the and, the, is- and the t and so when they think of jhanas they're thinking about what they would expect it to be rather than, and so even when they're reading about the jhanas, they're doing it with confirmation bias. They think they already know what jhana is without actually reading specifically what the sutta says that jhana is. And when you go from the other perspective and say, oh, well, if I'm going to make um, a cake, then I follow this recipe, and this recipe says I need this, that, and the other thing. I need eggs and milk and sugar and flour, right? And maybe some um, uh, some uh, uh, vanilla or, or something like that. Okay. Now, the thing of it is, is that if you're making a cake, but you're missing an ingredient, then will it be cake? In other words, if you have everything you need, but you don't have any sugar, and so you make a cake without any sugar, is it really going to be a cake? It may be more like bread (laughs) and not like a cake. How about if you don't have any egg in it? That means that you've got no binding agent. Okay, so this is the point that we can say is is that much of Buddhism is, in fact, uh, all of the ingredients except for one or two. 
that this is what's been missing in Western Buddhism is this concept of taking unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and putting wholesome thoughts in. It's almost like saying, take the dirt out of your cake and put sugar in instead. Or stop putting ground glass just because ground glass looks like sugar and you don't have sugar. Why are you putting ground glass in your egg, uh, into your cake? It's because it looks like sugar and I don't have sugar. The answer is no, you need to go get some sugar if you want to have some cake. And that seems to be what's missing in Western Buddhism is because they don't have the joy, they don't have the wholesome mind, the gladdening of the mind. What they put instead in there is, oh, Jhanas must be really deep and heavy and hard. And so that's how they practice their jhanas, deep and heavy and hard, because that's what they're expecting out of it, instead of actually recognizing, though the formula does not call for deep, heavy, and hard practice, it takes sugar. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so it's the confirmation bias that we often hear coming from the Western mind that misses out and some of these people practice 10 15 20 years i've got one guy who said i've been practicing meditation for 50 years how dare you tell me that it's simple okay that's enough statement right there to say because actually he was responding to a statement that was said that the first thing that you need to do is to get the mind clean and healthy and wholesome and that's really all you have to do and this guy is saying, I've been practicing meditation for 50 years. And you can't tell me that adding a spoonful of sugar is going to help the medicine go down because I have been fussing and fighting and screaming about meditation for 50 years and I'm better at it than you are. <laughs> 50 years I've been doing this stuff and I know what it's all about. Okay. Yeah, well, that's the Western, Western mentality of meditation. Yeah. And you see a lot of people that are practicing meditation that way and are teaching meditation that way. Yeah. But uh, that's just exactly why I think it would be so nice to, I don't know, to talk with more people or whatever, is to kind of get this. Well, that's what the song, I mean, it's in this infancy. We have only been doing it a month, but I, I assume that people are going to join and continue to come. And I offer you to uh, add your two cents worth in. Bring your own teaspoonful of sugar and throw it all around the Sangha group. <laughs> totally. yeah. That's true. Yeah, because it's like we don't. Else, you know, we don't. This practice is not that hard. Mm -hmm. There are many ways of looking at that. And one of them is, is that how could in the time of the Buddha in his lifetime not only had 20,000 monks by the time he was dead, but 2,000 of them, or 10%, actually got the teachings of the Buddha. About 10%. Why can't we get 10% in Western Buddhism? Why are we down there at 1 or even less than 1%? Why can't we get it up to the 10% where the Buddha had it? That's the question, okay? So we can. the answer is we can do it, but we have to do it the way that he did it. One-on-one, -on -one, inspiring people, giving them a teaspoon of sugar, to, uh, uh, saying that you can do it. But taking 100 students and putting them into a meditation retreat and telling them they've got to be quiet 
They've got to be silent. They can't do this. They can't do that. They can't do anything that they've been doing. And by the way, we didn't even bother to tell you, your main job here is to enjoy yourself. No, you're supposed to be working. You're here to work. Goenka makes sure that, he, that the students hear that. Work. Work. Yeah, this meditation stuff is heavy. You got to work. But I mean, it's not just Western Buddhism. Like, I don't know. I don't know. That, I don't know that much about any of the other Buddhists. I don't know. I'm very new to the whole thing. But it seems like like not even it seems very prevalent at least in zen as well like from from what i've read maybe i've only read western literature on zen but it seems like a lot of it that i've read is like i don't know it's just as like you need a like um the a quote from like the alan watts book or whatever is like but reaching enlightenment through zen is like swallowing a molten bowl ball of iron <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you could swallow a molten bowl of iron if you put enough sugar on it. <laughs> if it's a small ball of molten, <laughs> then we can make some caramelite. We can, you know, we can caramel. Uh, what is, you know, we can cook that sugar. Yeah. Cool that ball of iron off. Yeah. But I mean make it, yeah. make it palatable. That's the problem that I see that in fact that's the that's the Western mentality from Zen through Tibetan, Theravada, all of the Western views of Buddhism is that it's a hard path, tough going. Just like everything else, Western. Yeah. Okay. The Asians don't see it hard. It's a way of relaxing. <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it is just so. So funny. this this is the attitude. It's the it's the mental attitude, and that we need to see it in a, in an easier way. Yeah. yeah, that is a very it's a very interesting mindset. Um, I, I really have been trying to cut that idea of like, um, I can't remember the term for it, but it's like holding back satisfaction in the present in order to have later satisfaction in order to have a greater. Mm -hmm. Delayed, delayed gratification. Right. That's Western mentality completely. Learn your ABCs. Why? Not because, oh, I'll give you a cookie right now if you learn your ABCs. We don't teach children like that. We do with dogs. That's why dogs can learn dog tricks. It's because we reward them immediately. But our children, we don't know you do your homework. You can have fun after you do your homework. You've got to do all your homework now and then you can go play. All that delayed gratification is built into our society big time. And delayed gratification is another way of saying bait and switch. We bait you to do what you want, what we want you to do. And after you do it, then the switcheroo comes and you do not get the reward that you that we had bargained for. Because it's just there's just going to be another layer 
layer gratification. Just another layer, just another thing to do right on. And so children wind up being in the state of doing what they're told to do, going along to get along, but they really don't enjoy it. What we could do with our students in school is to teach them to enjoy their ABCs, to enjoy their one, two, threes, to enjoy reading, and to get a big kick out of it. And, to, and, the, and the parents are, oh, wow, that's such a marvelous. It doesn't matter how, what kind of picture it is. You have to tell the child that it's marvelous, that it's wonderful, that you, you did a really great job here, that this is a nice toy for you to play with. With an awe, I, I'm critical. I'm hard on you. You, you, you got to be feeling bad. I mean, you did, you did a job, but it wasn't good enough. You screwed up. You failed, kid. Okay, and so we grow up with that mentality that we're failures because we've been told that we're failures by the older kids and by adults. Instead of enjoy your enjoy, enjoy the show, enjoy your toys, play, enjoy, have fun. So now that's the time to do it now. This is the practice of Anapanasati is to gladden the mind, to cheer up. To see everything as a, a joy, everything's a toy to play with. And I've seen students go so far as to say, well, I tried what you said and I felt some joy, but it wasn't really big joy. It was just a little joy. And I says, yeah, but look, now you're being dissatisfied even with the joy that you have. Instead of saying, well, I got a little bit of joy there. That's marvelous. Totally. We're judging even the joy is just not good enough, which mm -hmm. means that we're, even with joy, we're not satisfied with the joy. We've got joy, but we're not satisfied. This is why I talk about satisfaction. Learn to be satisfied. Yeah, that is, I think, the extreme. That is the key. Yeah. That's built in. I mean, it's part of the, the language of the Pali. This is what Sukha is all about. Sukha means satisfaction as opposed to Dukkha, which means to be dissatisfied. Yeah, totally. But even like in all like the introductory Zen books and all the Western Buddhist literature, I suppose, it's all about like getting to Nirvana, right? And then you can not worry about anything and then you can be totally satisfied, but it's like exactly you've got to attain first and then enjoy. And what we're saying, no, go enjoy because that's the attainment. <laughs> you don't need to attain anything that that's very Western mindset is to attain things or attain jhanas, attain uh, path, attain fruit, attain uh, this, that, and the other thing. And the whole teaching of the Buddha is be satisfied with the way things are. Stop trying to attain stuff. You're okay already. You're already there. You, I mean, just enjoy the show. You've already arrived at the theater now. Just sit down and enjoy the show. And so much of philosophy is how to get the work done. But the teaching of the Buddha is stop trying to get any work done. You've already gotten too much work done and you're still not satisfied. So getting satisfaction from the work that's done is not the point. 
when you get yourself really satisfied and then work is not work anymore. Now it's a toy to play. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That is such a, yeah, I definitely. It is so true that like, a, it, you know, in a classroom or whatever, like things roll around and ideas come out and there's such a better time when people are just laughing and um, enjoying themselves and talking about these things and just not taking it too seriously. Cause it's like, I don't know, to me, just like, I think one of the big reasons I get such a kick out of philosophy is just, it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> you know, the whole, the whole dang thing is so ridiculous. Um, I just think it's kind of hilarious. Uh, and it's just hilarious. <laughs> like, it's just hilarious to ask these crazy questions or whatever. Um, and that's just so. Well, you could say, in fact, that the the old philosophers are the ones who are having a ball at asking crazy questions about their silly toys. <laughs> Modern philosophy is reading very deep, heavy books about those same questions, but now it's philosophy, <laughs> all heavy stuff. Right. I mean, to other be, than no, the philosophy is just a set of toys to play with. I mean, that's what uh, that's what the word philosophy means. Totally. The sophus uh, is is wisdom, and pillow is be friendly. Totally. To be fair, I do think that there's. I mean, you know, it'd be pretty hard to say that it's just totally black and white, right? That like. The old philosophers just had it totally right, and the new philosophers. No, 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 just don't, never anything in black and white. We've already gone through that part of the discussion. <laughs> you got to work really hard to make things either black or white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um, it seems that there were, uh, yeah, <laughs> there were some unhappy Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to think of the Stoics as actually happy, but I imagine that Stoicism actually is much more joyful. Totally, yeah. Totally. But it's not the stuck-up, uptight way that we see Stoicism. The Stoicism actually, oh, no, no problem, nothing to do. Right, the the um, the uh, the Greek, uh, the most famous doctor, Galen. You know about his story. Like he had all of his, he was like the most famous doctor who like established all this stuff. And he was a stoic. And he said that the time that I knew of the perfection of my practice was when he came to back to his house and found it had completely burned down and all of his, all of his life's work was completely burned to ashes. And he said, he didn't feel a thing. <laughs> and that he just, you know, sat down. It was just, you know, he was just cool. Wow, <laughs> look <know>? at that. <laughs> 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 yeah, so that's 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 real philosophy in in practice. There it went. It's gone. <laughs> Magic show. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, let's finish this call. This has been a really great call. I've really enjoyed this. You know, this has been great, and I think that you've gotten some understanding about. Um, Anapanasati as a, a natural method of practicing what was taught in an organized way.
Totally. Because it, it's not, go yeah, ahead. It's so easy for me to immediately take this and then like start to trying to put it like into those boxes and into those forms of like, you know, okay, this is this and then this is this. This has to be here and this has to be here, you know, but to be just like, this is just a really nice thing, <laughs> you know, like you said, just a toy to be played with, you know, like, yeah. It's a Great. Well, that's the new attitude to practice with is that you can do this. This is a toy to play with. I can handle this. I can watch that mind and I can clean that stuff out and have wholesome thoughts and just enjoy the day. One by one as they occur, because everything that occurs is all wholesome now. All right, well, we'll see you later. I'll see you later. Great to talk about. This is really great stuff. I really enjoyed talking to you about it. I feel super lucky to even have that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I mean, lots of gratitude.